Hello, and welcome to Technically Biased, the podcast that discusses bias in tech. My name is Kristen Gutu, and our guest for the episode is Vince Beiser, who I am very excited to have on the show. We discussed his book on an episode a couple of weeks ago. So today he will be giving us his perspective and helping us analyze and understand how the search for rare metals and renewable energy might just come at the expense of humans and the environment. So how does that and tech relate to one another? How do they influence each other? And how do we as a society navigate the world knowing this information. So to begin, I would like to say thank you, Vince, for being with us today. Um, I want to give some background. You are an award-winning journalist and author and have had your work featured in Wired, The Los Angeles Times, Harper's, The Atlantic, National Geographic, among many more. Your first book, which is what caught my eye, published five years ago, is The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. And you are now working on your next project, uh, Power Metal. So if you could please start us off and give us a background on what these two books cover. Sure. Okay, I'll give you the real nutshell version and then whatever sparks your interest, you, I can talk more about. So sand. So the first book, World in a Grain, is all about sand. Why in the world would I write a whole book about what sounds like the most boring subject in the world? The reason is because sand is actually the most important solid substance on earth. And I say that because it's the raw material that all of our cities are made out of in the most literal sense, right? I mean, I can see that wall behind you is probably made out of concrete just like the floor underneath me is made out of concrete, just like every shopping center, office block, apartment tower, everywhere in the world is made out of concrete. And concrete, turns out, is basically just sand and gravel that's been glued together. So every building that you see in every modern city, big pile of sand. Also, all the roads that connect all those buildings, also made out of sand, concrete, asphalt, also made of sand. The, every window in every single one of those buildings also made out of sand. Glass is just sand that's been melted down. The silicon chips that are powering this conversation we're having right now that run all our computers, all our phones, also made out of sand. So bottom line is no sand, no modern civilization. And the crazy thing is we are actually starting to run out. We're using so much sand in today's world that we are stripping riverbeds and beaches bare all over the world to get at it. And in some places, um, organized crime has gotten into the market uh, and people are being, hundreds of people are being murdered over sand of all things. So that's what the book is about. It's kind of like explaining how that is and how, how sand came to be so incredibly important, even though barely anybody ever thinks about it. And all the problems that come with that, all the environmental damage and all the, you know, the corruption and the, and the violence that, uh, that comes with it. And you mentioned in your book, the rare minerals and the metals being mined and that are necessary for all sorts of technology. 
Can you touch on the different exploitation that is a result of that, including child labor, whether that's in Africa or Asia, or also the consequences of the environment that takes the toll? Sure. Yeah. So this is this, this. So the second book, the one I'm working on now, which will hopefully be out uh, next year. Cross your fingers. I think good thoughts for me. Um, so it's um, the idea. There is it's about uh, you know it's sort of about the downsides of the energy transition and the digital revolution, right? So the good news is, yeah, we're switching over to solar and to wind power and to electric vehicles very quickly. This is great from a climate change perspective. But there is a problem, which is that to build all of those machines, all those solar panels and the wind turbines and the electric cars and their batteries, those are machines that are made out of metals like lithium, cobalt, rare earths, uh, a lot of strange and unusual metals. So to get all the metals that we need to build all those machines, and by the way, most of those metals are also the ones that our, lap, our digital gadgets are made out of our computers, our cell phones. So to get those metals, we need billions of tons of, of metal, more than we've ever mined before. And, to, and the, the chase, the pursuit of all those metals is causing, again, huge environmental damage and really serious suffering. So for example, um, so cobalt is a metal quite a rare metal that is used in basically every battery, electric car batteries, the battery in your laptop, the battery in your cell phone, almost certainly has cobalt in it. 70% of all the cobalt in the world comes from uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, right in the middle of Africa. And a lot of it is mined by children, right? There's some terrible human rights uh, uh, issues that go along with the mining of that cobalt. And, you know, in, besides the children that there's uh, some people who are, who are forced into the mining it basically as slave labors. And uh, I mean, even in the best case, these are miners who are getting, you know, pennies for, you know, this metal that sells for huge amounts of money. So big exploitation, big suffering. Um, another example is uh, uh, nickel. So nickel is another metal that's used in pretty much every kind of battery there is. The world's biggest producer, there's two biggest producers in the world are Russia and Indonesia. So in Indonesia, they're cutting down the rainforests, chopping down huge swaths of rainforests to get out, to dig up that nickel metal, and then also to build huge plants to, to process it and refine it, which is creating all kinds of pollution that's you know fouling streams and rivers and destroying fisheries. And then in Russia, Russia is actually the world's biggest supplier of high-grade nickel, the stuff that you really need the most for batteries. Now, when Russia invaded Ukraine, just about, you know, the whole world said, okay, we're going to slap sanctions on Russia to punish them for this. We're not going to, you know, no more Russian grain, no more Russian this, no more Russian that. But guess what? Russian nickel is exempt from those sanctions. Russia is continuing to sell its nickel on the open market. So in a very real sense, your batteries, the, the, you know, the, the batteries in our phones and laptops and the rest of it are helping to fund the war in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Crazy, yeah. right? That gives you perspective. And um, 
to tie it back, you were mentioning how this is such a competitive business, if you will, that now there's even uh, murder involved. You mentioned uh, an example in India. Can you reference that if you know which one I'm referring to? Sure. So this is how I found out about the sand story in the first place is I just stumbled across an article in an Indian newspaper about a guy, a farmer who'd been murdered over sand. And I was just like, I'd never thought about sand before, you know, beyond like, oh, I've been to the beach and I've got, you know, sand in my bathing suit. (laughs) But, you know, like, it just never occurred to me. Like, I was just baffled. Like, why in the world would anybody kill somebody else over sand? Who cares about sand, right? So I started looking into it and uh, Wired Magazine sent me over there to, to do a story about this, to sort of investigate what happened. And basically, uh, you know, India is is one of the countries that's in, in the developing world that's developing really fast, right? They're building cities like crazy, highways and, and high rises and dams and airports and all this other infrastructure that needs lots of concrete, which means it needs lots of sand. So there's huge demand for sand all over India. Um, so what's happening is, so what happened in this particular case is very, very typical. So it's this little village about an hour south of New Delhi. And these, uh, they call them sand mafias in India, which sounds a little funny, but but actually these guys are really serious. They're basically gangsters. They showed up in this village and just took over about 200 acres of the village's farmland, ripped out all the crops, dug up all the topsoil, and started mining out the sand to sell it to developers in Delhi, to people who were building buildings up there. So this guy, um, Paliram Chohan was his name. He was a, you know, just a local farmer and a bit of a leader in his community. He goes to these guys and he's like, stop, what you, you can't do this. You know, this is our livelihoods. And they just told him to go away. So he spent years organizing petitions and protest marches and going to the police and going to the courts, trying to get these guys to stop. But he couldn't get any traction, basically, because there's so much corruption in the system in India. These guys have a lot of money and they just, you know, pay off, pay bribes to the local cops, to the local judges, whoever, just leave us alone. So he couldn't get, Paliram Chohan couldn't get anybody official to, to help him out, but he did start to annoy these guys. He was making enough of a ruckus that at a certain point, the sort of leader of them took him aside and said, look, knock it off. You're really starting to annoy us. Stop it, or we're going to kill you. And but he didn't stop. He actually reported that threat to the police, which is how I know about it. And three days later, uh, a couple of guys kicked in the door of his house and shot him dead in his own bed. So that's it's a crazy story, but it is it's actually, you know, very typical. When I talk about hundreds of people being murdered over sand, it's very often a situation like that. So, but it's, I should add, it's not only, it's not just regular citizens who, you know, are standing up against these sand mafias. It's also journalists. It's, uh, you know, government officials. Sometimes it's even cops. Like a number of police have been killed by these guys. And P.S., it's not only in India either. India seems to be where the, there's the most violence around the sand trade. But in Mexico, in Gambia, in Indonesia, in a bunch of other countries all around the world, same thing. There's been violence, deadly violence caused by fighting over sand. 
And hearing all that is such, until I read your book a few weeks ago, it was so, like you said, I've never considered this perspective. And so should we be worried um, about increased illegal sand mining? And with the evolution of tech, should we be worried that there will be further exploitation? Or can we hope that tech will evolve in a way that should hopefully require less environmental destruction and human exploitation? Well, I think the answer to all those questions is yes. So yes, we should be worried about more uh, damage and violence being done by sand and by the the pursuit of these other metals, the tech metals that we need. Um, yes, I think it, it's definitely going to increase, right? Because as I said, most of the metals, most of the tech metals, you know, that that go into our digital gadgets, most of them are the same as the metals that we need for the energy transition, right? So the demand for all those metals is just going up really fast because of course there's more and more digital gadgets all the time. And at the same time, you know, we're building electric cars and all the rest of it. So uh, there's definitely going to be a lot more. There is already demand is increasing very fast. The damage that comes with that is also increasing. This is a problem. We should be paying very careful attention to it, but um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty hopeful that in the long run, if we're smart and if we're careful and if enough people, if enough people sort of wake up to these issues, that we can we can do things much better, right? I mean, here's the thing: we're human beings, we take from the earth, right? We we need to take from the earth to live and to live as, as modern people. We need to have mines. We need to have wood. We need to do damage to the environment, right? So there's always going to be some damage uh, that comes with our modern civilization. So, but but we can minimize that damage. There's a lot that we can do to bring that level of damage, which right now is very, very high, and bring it down a lot lower. And the same with, you know, the human suffering that it causes, right? People are, you know, there's rich and there's poor and the poor are always going to get shafted, but they don't have to get shafted as badly as they're getting shafted now. So that brings me to my next question, because with the evolution of technology and climate change, we see technology moving to the depths of the ocean and to outer space. But in a similar vein... What does this mean for different classes of people? Because even if we do make it to space, will that be at the expense of a universe we leave behind, destroyed with only the least of the wealthy? But also, what does that mean in terms of taking advantage of the land? Wow. We're going all the way to outer space, huh? Okay. Why not? Um, Yeah. Well, let me start with... Let me start with talking about the oceans because I, I just did a big story about this. And I think this is actually maybe a, a, a hopeful example. So the deal with ocean mining is, you know, there, there's a lot of push, a lot of corporations and a lot of governments want to start essentially mining the bottom of the ocean for exactly these technology metals that we need, cobalt, copper, all the rest of them. Lots of them down there, but 
you know, it means literally tearing up the seabed. So <clears throat> there, the last couple of years, there's been a big push for that. And there's one company in particular that's gotten very close to getting permission to like send down these giant robots, start tearing up the seafloor. I don't think they're going to be allowed to do it. And part of the reason is because there's been such a backlash against it. So many like non, you know, uh, environmental groups like Greenpeace and World Wildlife Fund have come out really, really strongly against it and have done a lot of research to show the damage that it can cause. Protesters, citizen action groups, people pressuring their, their governments, governments turning against it. There's been a huge backlash against it that's really slowed it down and anything can happen. But I would say, I think it's, I think deep sea mining is not going to happen anytime soon because there's, it's just gotten too, uh, too, uh, too politically hot. So that's here. Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, it goes to show you that like, you know, we can, like, if we're smart and if we act and if we get, you know, riled up enough, we can actually, stop the worst things from happening so i i you know like i might be i might be you know crying in my soup in a, in a few months because they'll they're allowed deep sea mining but at this point i'm guessing it's not going to go ahead so outer space is a really interesting question right that's that's a little ways down the road but it's true there's amounts of these metals out there in asteroids especially and there are people serious people with a lot of money who are eyeing those asteroids and you know thinking oh how can i get my hands on those metals and yeah are we just gonna just you know wreck havoc on the whole solar system and the whole galaxy the way that we have this planet it probably <laughs> yeah and then not just that, but even the building of these spaceports is so erosive to the environments that they're built in. So very interesting. Um, yeah. In your book, uh, I'm quoting you here, you said that every minute 23 hectares of land are lost to drought and desertification. So it was just World Day to combat desertification and drought on June 17th. So in honor of that, I would like you to answer how we can resolve all these issues and live happily ever after. Um, Oh, easy. easy. (laughs) You said that we have to use less sand. And in your TED Talk, you mentioned that we could do that by restructuring, um, by using less uh, cars. But to that, I have a question because, of course, that is a great solution. But what would that mean for the physical restructuring of the infrastructure that would be required? And would the trade-off really amount to a solution? Or would it be so intensive that it would kind of balance out? Mm, That's a really good question. So I think uh, we can do... like using fewer cars reducing our cars that's not a it's not going to solve all our problems no but it will this is exactly what i'm talking about it will shrink them a lot um it's not going to be easy but yeah i mean i think ultimately when you're talking whether you're talking about sand or whether you're talking about critical metals the the most important solution is 
to reduce the demand to like just consume less right don't worry so much about like oh we should mine it a little more carefully here and pay the workers a little more there that stuff's important but really the biggest solutions lie in just reducing our overall footprint on the planet and the easiest number one way that we as individuals can do that is by wherever possible not buying cars and using more the many many more efficient means of transportation that are out there right bicycles electric bicycles public transport walking right and new york city where you live is a great example of a city that's made huge strides towards that right like they've done a lot to to reduce car usage in the middle of manhattan and a hell of a lot to promote bikes right it's way easier to ride a bike there than it was 20 years ago and as a result more people are riding bikes and that's great right so yeah of course to build a bicycle yeah you still have to mine metals and you have to get rubber from somewhere and all the rest of it but a bicycle like the footprint of a bicycle on the planet is so 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 much smaller than a car and then on the other side after you've manufactured it i mean if you look at our modern cities today they're totally built around the car right we give up huge amounts of space for parking lots and for street parking right huge amounts of space that could be used if we didn't have if we had half as many cars think about how much more space we would have to house people to grow food to have playgrounds to have open spaces you know it would solve many 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 problems to to reduce cars so i really yeah that's that's the thing that i hammer on most there are lots of things that we can do that's really i think the most within reach so as our global population is quickly growing what else could we do on an individual basis because everybody now demands so much technology they demand fast fashion etc so what can we do to be better in yeah. this really good question um so uh you've heard the slogan uh recycle reuse reduce mm -hmm. It's a really old slogan. It's been around since I was a kid, but it's really it's very wise. That is some there's a lot of wisdom packed in there. So basically there's like three levels. Uh so the first is obviously we should be recycling more. And that goes for everything, right? It means I mean it it goes for sand, it goes for our digital items, right? So Right now in the United States, most digital gizmos, most cell phones, laptops, whatever, they end up in landfills. They're literally thrown out, which is not only a waste, but also these things have toxic chemicals in them that leach out into the landfills and can poison the water. So it's really bad to throw your digital gadgets out. Better is if we can recycle them, right? If we can tear them apart and pull out the metal and the rare earths and everything else and use it again. So we could be doing that. We should be doing more of that. Um, but what's even better than that, because recycling's difficult, and actually it takes a lot of energy to recycle things. It's difficult to collect all that stuff. So it's good, but better than recycling is to reuse a thing, right? So here we're all addicted to, you know, like, oh, the new iPhone's out. Oh, I got to get the new iPhone. I need the iPhone 17 or whatever it is. Uh, I don't want my old iPhone 12 anymore. Ah, throw it away. We got to stop that, 
right? Um, but even if we do, like, even if you are, like, if you're gonna, if you're getting rid of your, if you're just trading up on your laptop, on your cell phone, on your whatever, reuse it. We gotta, we gotta set up systems so that it's much easier to give those things or to get those things into the hands of people who are perfectly happy to use a two-year-old laptop or a four-year-old iPhone, right? And this is something that the developing world is much better at than we are. Like if you like for my new book, I spent a while reporting in Nigeria and in Nigeria, most of the electronics that they use are secondhand. They buy them from rich countries like us used, and then they sell them again overseas. And people there are, you know, like a five-year-old MacBook. Great. They're psyched with it. You know, it costs them, you know, it's a fraction of the price of new, does everything they need it to do. And then that thing is still being reused, right? It's just continuing on its life. We're getting much more life out of that thing, which means less demand, less need for more raw materials to make more new stuff. So reusing stuff, very important. And then ultimately we get back to reduce, right? What we were talking about before, which is which is the biggest and the most important thing you can do. And this goes across the board. Like you mentioned fast fashion. That's a great example. Just it's crazy to buy a piece of clothing and wear it two or three times and then throw it away, which is super common in this country. It's nuts. It's insane. Um, if so, like the best thing is just like, don't do that. Right? Just like, don't buy as many clothes. Uh, if you're, if you know, buy more secondhand clothes, but really just like, you know, see, think about ways that you can live your life and, and, and continue living how you want to live, but without consuming so much, right? Clothes, you probably don't need more clothes in your life. If you're, you know, a middle-class American, right? You can, uh, you know, instead of checking out your phone every year and getting a new one, use your phone for the next two years. I have an iPhone seven, right? It, it's not because I'm cheap. It's not because I'm broke. It's because it's fine. It does absolutely everything I need it to do. It takes great pictures. You know, Google Maps gives me everything I need to do. This phone can do. I've had it for, I don't even know how many years and I got it used. It's fine, right? So I just feel like we need more of that attitude. Like what I have is fine. I'm not going to replace it until I need to. And then again, uh, well, we already talked about cars, but cars is a really good example of, of a thing where there's there's an alternative, right? Like you don't, why do we have cars? We have cars to get from place to place. Well, what if I could give you a cheaper, more fun, more healthy, better for the planet way to do that exact same thing? So that's those are the solutions we should be looking for. Of course, we should be doing that on an individual level. But we see corporations and nations taking advantage, paying fines that are such fractions of their profits that it's not even a headache. So how can we hold these companies accountable? How can we hold nations accountable? And are there any specific of either that stand out in regards of over abuse of sand mining and um, the mining of raw minerals and metals? Mm, yeah, good questions. Uh, so absolutely, for sure. You know, if you care about this stuff, you know, pick an issue because there's 50 issues 
you know, just in the sand and and the metal space. Um, And yeah, do what you can to influence corporations and governments. Because at the end of the day, you and I just like, you can, you can ride a bike all you want and you can recycle all you want and you can carry around reusable straws all you want. It's not going to make much difference, right? It's going to, it's a tiny speck of difference. We need action at the highest levels. So um, as far as the sand issue goes, uh, you know, it's an issue. That's an issue that still is not getting a whole lot of attention. It's there's much more than there used to be, but it's still something that most people have never even heard about. So just spreading awareness on that one, I feel like is a really good one. Uh, World Wildlife Fund is doing good work around sand and the UN Environment Program is doing good work around sand. So that's a place to plug in. On the metals front, there are lots of groups uh, that have all different kinds of campaigns going on, you know, various particular issues like deep sea mining is a big one. There's lots of groups active on that. Um, Lithium mining in Chile is a big one. Um, So, you know, I would say sort of see what gets you fired up. Is it human rights? Is it rainforests? Is it deserts? Uh, cause those are all, you know, there's trouble in all those places. We can work on all those places. And also, you know, uh, on the, on the other side, on the solution side, um, there is a lot of momentum. I mean, I keep bringing it back to cars, but that's cause I think it's really so important and so achievable, right? Because there's a lot of momentum uh, much more in Europe, but also in the United States these days, to really start rethinking our cities and redesigning our cities, you know, doing some of the things that New York has pioneered, right? Putting in bicycle lanes, uh, you know, banning car traffic from certain areas, you know, uh, uh, reorganizing, like trying to build more stuff around public transport. So if, you know, if any of your listeners are, you're in a city or a town where any of that stuff is you know, coming up for a vote or if, you know, there's like-minded folks like push for that man. push for that. Cause that, that really does make a big difference. I can tell you, I live in Vancouver here. Um, and, uh, I, I grew up here and then I moved away for like a long, long time. And I just came back a couple of years ago and it, the, the changes that have happened in that time are incredible. Like I used to be a bike messenger once upon a time here in Vancouver. And there was, it was just like you and the traffic. You're just like out there with the cars all day, every day. And nobody thought twice about it, right? Now there's, there are protected bike lanes everywhere. There's a great bicycle network all over the place. You can rent bikes at little rent-a-bike stations. It's really easy and really safe to get around on a bicycle. And as a result, way more people do that. Like the number of people getting around on a bike in this town is 10 times what it used to be. And as a result, there's fewer cars, especially younger people. They're just, you know, they don't see the need for cars. And I say, great. I totally agree. I hate driving. That's why yeah. I'm in New York. Um, so to close us off, I want to ask, is there anything you want to highlight from Power Metal and bring it back to... Should we be optimistic about the future? Should we be worried? Yeah, well, we should be worried, absolutely. But we should also be optimistic, right? And, uh, you know, we're facing a lot of problems. 
um, you know, climate change and everything else. Uh, and it's, you know, there's going to be some rough going for sure. There's, you know, things are already, you know, getting worse in a lot of ways with the fires and, and uh, you know, people being driven from their countries and all this other stuff we're seeing. I think those things are going to get worse before they get better. It's going to be a rough next, you know, 5, 10, 20 years. But I really do believe that, you know, human beings were really good at creating problems, but we're also very good at solving problems, at getting ourselves out of, you know, troubles like this. I mean, you know, if you think of things like the the ozone hole was a huge problem that people were worried about. We basically figured out a way to fix that. Acid rain was a huge, huge worldwide environmental problem, you know, 20, 30 years ago. We largely fixed that one. Climate change is the biggest one we've ever faced. But yeah, I'm optimistic. I really do think that, uh, you know, if enough people are active enough and willing to, you know, put in the effort, yeah, I think we're going to, I think we're going to make it. Well, I'm hopeful. And I so appreciate your time today, Vince. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Sure. It was great being here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Technically Biased. Tune in next week for guest Lindsay Lee Wallace. She is a writer who will be sharing her perspective on AI in creative and journalistic writing. Should we be worried? Tune in to find out. Thanks and have a great day, everyone.